Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble presents the seventh edition of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. I'm proud of being a Floridian, and I want people to know that even though they want from someplace else, it makes no difference. They're now a Floridian, and, they should, and we want them to be dedicated to Florida. After the Civil War, the Confederate government almost moved to Venezuela. Sometime between 1863 and 1865, Price had contacted the Venezuelan government and had petitioned for a land grant. We'll discuss how the 1885 Capon House was recently saved in Winter Park. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Wreck ashore! With these words, every wrecker in Key West raced out to sea in an attempt to be the first one to reach the shipwreck. The first one there was named Wrecking Master, and he usually got the largest share of salvage. Divers, too, faced much danger, not only from diving down into dark waters, but also from toxic dyes and cargo. They, too, were paid extra. That's Lizzie Seal telling a story about shipwreck salvaging in Key West in the seventh edition of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. The show will be presented August 15th, 16th, and 17th at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This year's production includes tales from Florida history that take place in Key West, Okeechobee, Lake Wales, Jacksonville, the Panhandle City of St. Joseph, and elsewhere. Director Lady Gail Ryan, founder of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble, has developed a passion for Florida history. You know, I started this as just sort of a, because I had to, a, a cracker, and began to, and, and then I began to study and find out Florida. And as I've told you before, I was rather embarrassed to tell people when I was in Michigan or New York or any place in the whole world where I was from, Miami, Florida, because we were sort of behind time down there. And, um, and then I began to find out the unbelievable story since 1513 on down. And there are so many things that have happened here. So many people have contributed to the growth of, of this state. And it's important now, I think, to understand that each one of us, the 19 million so-and-so so, uh, people that are here, that they have something that they need to contribute to the state because it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And we certainly need to stop taking it apart and love it and and dedicate ourselves to helping it out and that's that's why i've become you know i'm very proud i'm a Floridian now yeah i was a pioneer you know in the sense yes i we didn't go yeah i wasn't here in the 1800s but born in 1929 it was pretty pretty young around here and uh so i'm proud of being a floridian and i want people to know that even though they want from someplace else makes no difference they're now a floridian and, they should, and we want them to be dedicated to Florida. Each year, Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination presents different stories from Florida's past. 
The production features both familiar historical figures and everyday people who had a major impact. Lady Gail Ryan. They were the backbone, of course. What would, they, what would the king of the crackers do if he hadn't had cowboys there to help him out? And um, it, it took help of everybody. Even Flagler was very, to him, his employees were very important. He built buildings for them to, so they could have a place for their families, could, education. As it came down, I mean, you can't have a civilization or a state without the average man. That's it. And yes, we did. This time we tell stories about more about the average people than anybody else, except for Edward Bach whom I struck dumb with because uh, each Easter for the last two, well, the last two Easters, we have gone over there and I, and to know what this man gave to the state of Florida, it's the most beautiful place to go and become in touch with yourself. And um, in pouring down rain, uh, two, over 2,000 people sat before dawn, everybody getting up around four o'clock in pouring rain and never left to hear and see the program. It was unbelievable. Some people in wheelchairs, babies, teenagers, and what Bach did, he didn't want, you know, like Disney. Disney has another purpose, but this is where you go in serenity. And when you look up there, the highest place in Florida, and realize he spent all this money so that people could have a place to go and commune with nature. It's marvelous. Like Florida itself, the subject matter of each production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination is diverse. For the seventh edition of the show, topics range from Spanish colonial Florida to cracker cowboys to pioneer teachers in Florida. I'd always dreamed of becoming a teacher, even as a young student. I would rush home from school and try to teach my younger siblings all that I had learned that day. So it wasn't any surprise to my family that I would go to teaching school when I graduated. So I studied hard, and in 1885, at the age of 18, I got my teaching certificate. But what shocked my family was that I wanted to go to South Florida to teach. See, I would heard that there were many children there that would never, ever learn to read or write because there was no one there to teach them. Well, it broke my heart. That's Yvonne Piper from the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble. Director Lady Gail Ryan says that the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination also looks at the 20th century. For example, the show explores the effect of World War II on Florida. I lived through the 1941 and 42 reign of the U- Nazi U-boats out on the East Coast. And, uh, and when I began to read about this and see what, hap- what really happened, uh, and, and I was in a, on a pier uh, at, the, at the Florida, at Miami Harbor, uh, and we were entertaining for 500 uh, uh, servicemen to go. And my mother, who was squeezing orange juice, and I would go out and help her, um, said that she heard something knocking on on the uh, uh, outside on one uh, underneath the bridge, and and so she got the, she said go get the MPs, and I said what for? She said go get the MPs. You understand me now, and and then she took them down, and she knew that a mine had become loose, had been let loose, uh, and it would have blown up 
the harbor entrance of the Miami River, and a lot of the hotels by that time were filled with servicemen, and there were 500 in there with along with girls who came to dance with them. So um, I lived through that. <laughs> I lived through the lights going out. I lived through the rationing, um, you know, and and trying to help out any way that I could in this war that really affected Florida more physically and emotionally than most of the other places in, in the country because they didn't have this threat right outside in the water. In the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Michael Fiore will be telling the story of the hurricane of 1928 that devastated Okeechobee. What's really interesting when you do storytelling or do these type of pieces, the piece chooses you. And this piece just really affected me because I really knew nothing about it. I didn't know the mass and devastation and the fact that over 2,000 lives were lost. And they're even now saying that may be underestimated. And because of that, that's why the new uh, dike that's been built came under um, Hoover. And it was just fascinating to me that they were given no warning that the Weather Bureau totally read the hurricane wrong and everybody was like a sigh of relief and then when they just realized that it was coming and they got very little uh, warning there was really no way to escape because the only roads out led right into the path of the uh, hurricane so they just tried to do the best they could and at that time a lot of the people that died and it, it hit everybody but a lot were uh, sharecroppers and tenant farmers and their structures were like little shacks or uh, you know very weak frame buildings and they just blew you know away and more devastation was caused because the dike blew and it got flooded of lego flooded and just wiped out whole towns and it just uh, really affected me when i read it because i just didn't know that we had had that massive a hurricane you know i knew about what andrew down in miami but this one just you know for all the the damage it did and the time that it occurred it was just like yeah i think this is an interesting story to tell Told from the perspective of a survivor, Michael Fiore's tale about the 1928 hurricane shows that nature provided other obstacles in addition to the weather. A lot of people, they couldn't get on top of roofs, and even the roofs they were on were being like taken out with the, with the flood. So a lot of people went into trees to try to save themselves. But they had even a worse menace when they got into the trees because the uh, snakes in the area trying to get it out of the water had gone into the trees and it got to a point that the snakes from the reports are outnumbered 10,000 to 1 humankind and a lot of people got bit and actually died from the uh, bites. I'm taking the positive that's what I did to escape and I survived. Is it safe to come down now? I will never forget those words. My God, how I'd survived when so many others had died on that fateful night. Oh, please forgive me. I'm afraid I've jumped to the ending of my story. Let me take you back to the beginning. It was Sunday, September 16, 1928. Oh, I had expected a little wind and rain from the big blow, but that was about all. Granted, it was considered a killer hurricane. Several days earlier, it had smashed through Puerto Rico, leaving hundreds dead or homeless. But Weather Bureau reports said the big wind would pass far clear of the Palm Beach, Okeechobee region. Michael Fiore believes it's important well, for everyone to know about Florida's history and says that mosquitoes, alligators, and determination is a great way to find out about it. I think it's very important because I, until I got involved with it, and this is my second year uh, doing it, 
And last year I did a piece on the scene of the Commodore that Stephen Crane was, was on, and he ended up writing a short story based on his uh, remembrance of that occurrence. But just from the stories last year, I found out things that I didn't know about, uh, about Florida and, and its history. And we are actually a vast state. You know, that we've got, you know, our, our panhandle area, we've got, you know, Miami, and different things have happened in all different aspects uh, of it. And we've got a really valued uh, history that a lot of us don't know about. And especially since there are very few actual native Floridians, you know, we seem to be more a uh, state of uh, people who have immigrated, you know, and especially from up north. And so when you come in, a lot of times you don't know about, you know, the, the history. And it's not that you don't care to, it's just like you've come at a different stage in your life, you're not learning about it in school. Dolores Purdy is telling the story of the 1888 yellow fever outbreak in Jacksonville in the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Purdy agrees that Florida history provides a sense of community and makes people feel connected to the state. Well, it's always a good thing to know the history of the place where you live. I mean, I, I'm a teacher, and when I was at Golfview, the principal stressed that we all should take a field trip to St. Augustine. And I was like, for what? And until I got there, and it was like, wow, I didn't know about the Chumaquan Indians, didn't know about any of those things. And it just makes it, things just feel better or feel different when you know about the history and you appreciate it more. You protect it, you know, and, and just look forward to preserving it. The seventh edition of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination will be presented by the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble at the Library of Florida History in Coco, August 15th, 16th, and 17th. Seating is guaranteed by reservation only. Reservations are available online at myfloridahistory.org. Jacksonville was in its heyday back in 1888. Let me tell you something. There were 25,000 citizens, 25 major hotels, all within a five-mile radius. Oh, it was the place to be. Seaboat and river commerce, they had that on lock. See, that's a young folk term for saying they had a monopoly on the business, you know. Anybody who was anybody had to pass through Jacksonville just to say they'd been there. Until July the 28th of that year, that is. That's when a gentleman by the name of Richard D. McCormick, a saloon keeper from Tampa, Florida, decided to grace his presence. Well, he had his little good time, and then he checked into the Mayflower Hotel, and all of a sudden, he's not feeling well. He has body pains and severe chills. This well, is Florida Frontiers, the Dr. weekly King, radio magazine of the Florida Historical after. Society. Wow, I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, check out our Florida Frontiers blog, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. The national anthem of Venezuela, Gloria al Bravo Pueblo, may have had special significance for many Floridians after the Civil War. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
then I think many people will be very surprised to learn that Venezuela nearly became home to a huge colony of Confederates immediately following the American Civil War. Yeah, that's right. This is kind of an interesting chapter in the uh, years following the the conclusion of the Civil War in 1865, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Henry Price, Dr. Henry M. Price, uh, who had actually fought for the Confederacy uh, for a Virginia regiment who was injured sometime about 1863. Uh, and sometime between 1863 and 1865, Price had contacted the Venezuelan government and had petitioned for a land grant. Uh, he must have seen the writing on the wall, I guess, and, and felt that the, uh, the, the Confederate cause was, uh, was failing and that the, the war was going to uh, be lost by the Confederacy. So in his mind, uh, he thought he could gather together some of these former Confederates um, and settle in a new territory and, and kind of rekindle this, this Confederate cause and the, the ideals of, of the Old South, uh, establish a large plantation economy and a new land, and, and the Venezuelan government actually agreed to it. Well, how successful was the Confederate colonization effort in Venezuela? Well, originally in, in 1866, uh, we know that Henry Price was granted uh, about 240,000 square miles uh, in the northern part of uh, the Orinoco River Valley in Venezuela. Uh, now, you know, I say 240,000 uh, square miles, but much of that territory was uh, not only unexplored, but, but completely unsettled. So this is really just virgin jungle territory. Um, so as early as, as December of 1866, uh, not necessarily Price, but a few of the early uh, would-be colonizers boarded a, a small ship and sailed from New Orleans and landed at the, uh, the mouth of the Orinoco River uh, to find just that, uh, a wild jungle. Uh, there was really no one there to receive them. Nothing had been set up by the Venezuelan government or by Henry Price and this early land company to help facilitate colonization. Uh, so this first group of about 60 people, um, half of whom almost immediately turned around and sailed back to the United States, gave up entirely. And the few that remained um, either became ill uh, or had essentially spent all of their money to get to, to Venezuela and had lost everything and, and boarded the uh, the first ship they could get back. There were uh, seven other um, uh, expeditions or, or early colonization attempts uh, into Venezuela, all of which actually ended up failing. There were various stages of success. A few of them tried to settle in different areas up the Orinoco River. Uh, Henry Price himself actually came down to Venezuela in 1867, uh, but got into a scuffle with one of the local um, government officials and was actually expelled from the country and was sent back to the United States forcibly. He also contracted malaria, too. But um, uh, so it was it was as a whole, extremely unsuccessful. And there really were only about uh, between 400 and 500 people that made the, the journey, all of whom ended up either, again, dying of disease or, or traveling back to the U.S. Well, you have some really great documents here at the Library of Florida History, including a, a map of this proposed uh, colony area in Venezuela and also a document explaining how uh, this thing was finally put to rest. Oh, that's right. The uh, the map itself, I think, is is probably one of the, the more fascinating pieces that we have as part of this collection. It's actually a hand-colored map of the price grant uh, showing the 240,000 square miles, but it also uh, depicts these small red circles that are um, supposed to be settlements. And this is actually the product of, um, of Henry Price and his uh, boosterism when he came back from Venezuela. 
so prior to to Price traveling to Venezuela, they hadn't actually incorporated this Venezuelan land company. When he came back, they decided to. They actually had investors. They were starting to actually make money off of this, essentially a fake settlement. Um, so as part of this uh, incorporation, he had to produce a map. And this is an example of one of those actual hand-colored maps showing the, the size of these colonies, even though uh, the colonies didn't actually exist. They were proposed colonies along the uh, along the different river systems. Uh, and again, it's hand colored. It shows uh, here on the on the eastern edge of the grant. You can see English Guyana, which was actually a disputed barrier between uh, Venezuela and and the uh, English government. Um, and and a few of the other uh, charted river systems. Although there were quite a few that were at this time still unmapped. Um, so it's just an, an enormous expanse of, of really virgin um, uh, tropical rainforest that uh, uh, that Price had uh, idealized and, and thought might be settled. Um, we also have a, a transcript of the original uh, concession that the Venezuelan government granted uh, to Price in 1865 and 1866 that gives some of the stipulations. Essentially, the v Venezuelan government was going to uh, allow them to settle on this property to become naturalized citizens. Uh, they were uh, exempt from taxes for up to a few years on all of their exports that they produced. And this isn't new. I mean, the, the Venezuelan government at this time had been trying to promote uh, you know, settlement in, in the area, not only uh, from former Confederates, but really any other expatriates who were trying to settle in the area. The problem was there were a lot of infighting, there were rebel groups, and, and a lot of um, uh, fracturing within the, the Venezuelan government at this time. So even though they had granted this land, uh, and they had this uh, piece of paper that uh, many believed was a ratified agreement, it was never actually ratified by the Brazilian government. It was really just a an example of um, some of the concessions that would be given to Grant had they ratified the agreement, but it never actually was. Now, the, the second group of documents we have here actually date from the 1890s, and this is a transcript of um, the petition that Price actually presented to the United States government in 1890. Uh, from about the time that the settlement failed, about 1870, until 1890, Price had petitioned the U.S. government for compensation uh, for this failed settlement attempt, and this is a... Um, uh, a, a group of documents that relate to uh, President McKinley's response to Price's petition, which essentially is laying it all to rest and saying, that's it, uh, this land scheme is completely done, we will not honor it, and the Venezuelan government agreed. Well, great. I, I think this is a really uh, fascinating story that we, we don't hear a whole lot about. Thanks, Ben. Absolutely. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. The 1885 Capon House in Winter Park has recently been moved to the Alban Palashik Estate. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. The Capon House was built in 1885 by James Seymour Capon. He was one of the founders of Winter Park, and he was um, really a town booster and helped bring a lot of people to the city when it was first established. That was Christine Madrid-French, project director for Preservation Capon with the Palasic Museum and Gardens. She was telling me about James S. Capon. Here, Madrid French tells me why Capon was so important to the founding of Winter Park. 
Yeah, so Capen was a founder, one of the founders of Winter Park. He actually, I found there's a letter in Rollins, and he brought 10 people with him, including his brother and some of his other relatives. And they all settled in the Winter Park area before it was what we know as Winter Park. So it was really only a few houses and a lot of pine groves. People started to plant um, uh, oranges even that early. And they were really, most people came down from the north just to find this respite from the weather, just like we do today and also for their health. Madrid French is working to preserve the Capen family home, which was threatened with demolition when new owners bought the historic home and property. She tells me here what these groups had to accomplish in order to preserve this house. The house was protected with the local Winter Park um, historic um, register, and new owners bought the property and wanted to build something else there. So. Uh, a collaboration arose between three different community groups. It was the Winter Park Historical Association, uh, Casa Feliz, and the Album Palachic Museum. They got together, they developed fundraising, and they saved the house. But to save it, we had to move it. So the house had to be moved off the property. Old homes in Florida are increasingly a rare sight. One day, houses like this might be as extinct on the Florida landscape has the dodo bird. Florida's built environment is seeded with so many structures from the last 50 years that old historic homes, like the Capen House, get lost in the shuffle. Florida residents today have few reminders of the variety of styles of Florida's 19th century architecture. In its time, the Capen House would have been one of the most affluent homes in Winter Park, denoting the middle-class Victorian lifestyle of its owners. Madrid French tells me why it is important to preserve a house built in the late 19th century. Well, you know, you can never rebuild an 1885 house from scratch anymore. So if, once you uh, lose these resources, they can never be retrieved. And there are only so many 19th century buildings left in Florida. So it's very important that we preserve those that we still have today. By the 1920s, Mr. and Ms. Howard Showalter purchased the Capen home and made modifications to fit their needs. Madrid French tells us how these modifications were completed. The house was remodeled in the 1920s by the Showalter family, but underneath that remodeling is the original house. It was actually encased when they did this remodeling. So now that we've had to move the building to save it, we've uncovered quite a bit of the original 1885 material. When the Capen family occupied the house, it was a busy center of social life for Winter Park in the late 19th and early 20th century. After the remodeling is complete, it will again be a place that visitors to Winter Park can visit. Madrid French tells us what eventually will become of the Capen house once the remodeling is completed. All right, so it was very exciting when we moved it. We couldn't move the house in one piece, which was part of the problem. It had to be cut in half and then floated across the lake. Well, now the house is in two pieces at the Palachic Museum. So part of this next phase is we have to restore the house, bring both the pieces back together, basically stitch it together, and then we can welcome visitors. Uh, once we have visitors over, we're going to have exhibits inside the house that uh, show the history of the Capen family and the Showalters, and also um, a sculpture garden around and then the house will be open to the public for community events and rentals. That was Christine Madrid French 
And I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Be part of the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.